Well, y'all, I'm so glad that you are here with us. I love to worship with you every Sunday. Lights, hello. All right, here we go. So uh, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I love, again, to worship with you every single Sunday to lift high the name of Jesus. Uh, I'll confess, I love it a little bit more when it's 65 degrees and incredible outside, not blazing hot. All right, so uh, I'm just glad that you're here. We are in week number 41 of the year of discipleship. I've never, I don't think in my life, tracked like what week of the year we're on. Uh, week 51, 41 of 52, all right, so we've got just 10 or 11 weeks left. Uh, we are in this year of discipleship based primarily around this Bible reading plan F260. Uh, like Justin said, uh, please join us. We are, if you've got a physical copy, which you can grab uh, at Next Steps, you can grab a digital copy at friendshipwire.com. Uh, we are on the back side of the reading plan, the very last page. So we are making our way to the end of 2022, which is crazy. Uh, we're in this series called Spirit and Truth. Uh, we've been working through the, the redemption story, the story of God through the scriptures from beginning to end. And so we've been kind of hitting different points throughout the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament now. We've, we've seen in our last series the, the, the ministry, the life and ministry of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. And then in this series, Spirit and Truth, we've moved into the book of Acts and really the rest of the, the New Testament. The Holy Spirit has come, the church has been born, and now the church leaders, these early church leaders are preaching the gospel and spreading it to the ends of the earth. And one of the big things I've, I've mentioned that we see in the book of Acts is this transition where the gospel has become available to all, not just Jews, the chosen people of God, but to Gentiles, to those outside of the nation of Israel. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is available to everyone. And what God does is he raises up this servant named Paul, formerly Saul, in the book of Acts, and he uses Paul as a as a a first century missionary or church planner that begins to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And so the church is born, but then you see all kinds of, of local churches like this one that begin to spring up uh, all over the world. And so the church is born and we see throughout the New Testament, the church begins to grow as the gospel is preached. People believe in Christ and they are added to the church. And three weeks ago, week number 38, as we kicked off this series, Spirit and Truth, I had a bottom line that I just want to kind of remind you of again. Maybe you were here, maybe you remember it, maybe this is new to you, but this is what we said three weeks ago. The church is built upon the gospel by the word of God and the work of the Spirit. The church is built upon the gospel by the word of God and the work of the Spirit. And so you see the gospel preached throughout the book of Acts and the Spirit is at work and the church begins to grow, but it's all based upon the gospel. And so what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter one. We're gonna talk a little bit more about what that gospel is that the church is founded and built upon. And so the sermon today is called The Cross, God's Wisdom and Power. The cross, God's wisdom and power will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So let me give you some context for 1 Corinthians 1. And again, the reason why we're kind of bouncing around in these New Testament books or letters is because in the book of Acts, as the gospel is going out, Paul, remember, he's this missionary, this church planner who is traveling. He's, got these, he's, he's going on these missionary journeys to establish churches in different areas to preach the gospel where it hasn't been preached. And, and so these different letters that are written uh, that we're going through in the New Testament are, are is Paul writing to these 
these churches. And 1 Corinthians, if you know anything about it, uh, it's, it's this church in Corinth, this letter written to the, these people in a port city that was very carnal. They lived um, very much like the culture around them uh, rather than for Christ. It's a messed up church when you see this letter Paul writes here. And what Paul was doing in this letter to the Corinthians was he was, for the most part, addressing two things that he's heard reports of. Number one, division in the church. And number two, sexual immorality. So there's all kinds of division in the church where, where people have like formed factions uh, about who, like which spiritual leaders they're following. Some are saying, I follow Paul. Some are saying, I follow Apollos. This is kind of like our current political system. Like I belong to this party, I belong to this party, and there's all this division within the church. And then there's, there's uh, rampant sexual immorality taking place in the church. But what we're gonna kind of talk about this morning is that first one, division in the church. First Corinthians 1, we see Paul address this because Paul, what he begins to do in this letter is he calls the church to unity. Not division, but to unity. And I want to read uh, verse number 10 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is kind of a summary, really, the reason why Paul is writing to the church in the first place. 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. So, Paul's saying, hey, I want you to agree. I want you to be united together in the same mind and the same judgment. So, so Paul wasn't saying, hey, I want you to have all the same opinions and thoughts on everything, right? That's like trying to say, I want all of your Facebook friends to agree on everything, right? That's just not going to happen. But he says, I want you to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. What was Paul talking about here? Well, as we kind of work down through 1 Corinthians 1, what we'll see is what he's, what he's talking about is I want you to be united around the gospel. I want you to be united around the gospel. When he says united in the same mind and the same judgment, what he's saying here is, I want you to have a shared conviction about the importance and the centrality of the gospel. Like this has to be central. This is the most important thing. And the way I'll say it this morning is this, the key to church unity is gospel centrality. The key to church unity is gospel centrality. So, let me kind of talk about that for a moment. Church unity. This is really why Paul's writing here. We see this language throughout the New Testament that what, God, what, what Paul was aiming for, what God wanted in the church was, was unity. Not uniformity, not everybody agreeing on everything, but agreeing on the main thing, the one thing, the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And so the key to, to unity in the church, whether that's our church, any church, is gospel centrality. In other words, the gospel must be front and center at the heart of everything that happens. The key to church unity is gospel centrality. And so what we're going to do today is just kind of attempt to talk about that gospel centrality, what that's all about. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me, here's the three questions that we're going to kind of walk through this morning. One, what is the gospel? What do we do with the gospel? And then number three, how do people respond to the gospel? So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to go from verse 17 through 25, and then we're going to answer those questions together. 
Paul says this, he's coming off of this conversation where he says, hey, I want you to be the same mind, the same judgment. I've heard these reports that you've broken up into these factions. You've even, it is inferred that some of you even said, I've been baptized by Paul or Apollos. They're picking their sides. There's all this division. Paul says in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, uh, to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so here's the very first question this morning, is what is the gospel? This gospel that creates unity in the church, this gospel upon which the church is built, what is the gospel? And you all I know as we pose that question as, as people who frequent church, that we come every single week, that's, a, that's easily a question that we kind of blow by. We go, oh, I know what that means. I know what that's all about. I understand it. But I want to just caution you this morning. Let's not rush past this. This is to be central in all that we do. And so we've got to make sure we understand what the gospel is. Gospel, you've heard me say this before. This isn't the first time. It won't be the last time. Gospel simply means literally good news. Good news. It is a message that you proclaim. It is a proclamation. It's something that you speak about, that you share, that you tell. It is good news. So before we kind of talk about the contents of the gospel, why is it good news? Why would we say that this message is good? Well, I want to read a quote to you from Charles Spurgeon. Surprise, surprise. Um, it's from Spurgeon's Catechism. And I introduced that term a couple weeks ago. Catechism just means it's a way of learning that has a question and an answer. So question, answer. So Spurgeon said this. Here's the question. Reflecting on, on, on the state of, the, of, of humans under the fall, under sin, because of what Adam and Eve did, what is the misery of that state whereunto man fell? So when Adam and Eve sinned, when when man plunged us all into sin, what is the state of, of man? What is the misery that we experience because of, of this? Here's the answer. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to, which means subject to or susceptible to, all the miseries in this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. Now, I just want you to pause and kind of soak this in for a second. Okay, what is, what is the deal? Because of sin in our life, what do we experience? He says this, all mankind by their fall have lost communion with God. So in other words, our relationship with God is cut off. It's separated. That's one thing. He says, 
we're all under his wrath and curse. So the, the penalty of our sin against the holy God, we are under his wrath. The Bible talks about that his wrath is storing up until the last day. And so we're under this condemnation, this curse. And so made liable, we're subject to, we're susceptible to all the miseries in this life, all the heartache, all the pain, all the brokenness we experience because of sin. We experience that. Also, death itself. Every one of us has been touched by death. The pain, the horror of death. It's because of the fall. It's because of our sin. And to the pains of hell forever. Those who enter into eternity without Jesus spend eternity in the pains of hell forever. That is all what we are subject to because of our sinfulness, our fallenness, our brokenness before God. That is what we would call bad news, right? That is bad news for every single human being. That is what makes the gospel good news, is that we can receive the forgiveness of God, the redemption of God through the work of Jesus on our behalf. That the perfect God-man died in our place on the cross, took our sin upon himself, died the death we deserved, took that into the grave and yet rose miraculously in victory over death, hell, and the grave. That is good news. Because of what he has done, we can escape all of these things. We can have communion with God. We, can, we are no longer under his wrath and under the curse of sin. We will still experience pain and brokenness, but we don't have to experience the sting of death, the power of death, nor do we have to spend eternity separated from God in hell, we get to experience eternity with this God who loves us so much. That is good news. Amen? This is the message of the gospel. This is what we're talking about here. And, and the contents, let me just kind of remind us, I've kind of talked about it already, but 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays it out very clearly. Here is the gospel. He says, now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse three, here it is. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So the gospel is this. It's the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. It's the person and work of Christ for us. That is the good news. And, and Paul, throughout 1 Corinthians here, he, he calls it by some different things. So let me, let me just kind of walk through those things. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, we just saw that. He said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And this is our, our verse of the week. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross. So the gospel is the word of the cross. It has to do with Jesus and Jesus crucified. In fact, that's the next phrase. Verse number 23 says this. He says, we preach Christ, what? Crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. Actually, if you, if you go down further, and we'll read this in a, in a few minutes, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul kind of reiterates this. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him, what? Crucified. Christ crucified. The gospel is Christ crucified. This is the gospel, the word of the cross, Christ crucified. Uh, we saw in verse 18 already, but he says the word of the cross 
is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? Power of God. The gospel is the power of God. In fact, Paul says this in another place, Romans 1.16, he says it this way. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. It's available to everyone, the power of God for salvation. The gospel is power. And y'all know I don't break out the Greek too often, but that word power uh, in, in, in both of these passages, the Greek word is dunamis, which is where we derive the English word dynamite. So when it talks about the power of the gospel, it's talking about this explosive power, this power that can take us from death to life, this power that raised Christ from the dead, that this is the same power that can wash away all of our sin and redeem us. This is the gospel. It is the power of God. Verse number 24, he goes on to say this, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the wisdom of God. And what we see in the New Testament is that God's wisdom is different than man's wisdom. This is a message that doesn't seem wise. It doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to fit in the eyes of the world, but it's the wisdom of God. It's the power of God at work. This is the gospel. Now, here's a term that I want to mention. You may have heard me say this before. I haven't said it a lot in three years, um, but this drives everything I do. The word is, or the phrase is gospel-centered. Gospel-centered. What gospel-centered mean is it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, who he is, what he has done. Not primarily about us, not about how good we are, not about how bad we are. It's about his goodness and his grace. It's about his kindness and his mercy. It's about his finished work. Now that has implications for how we live and who we are and what we do, but it's not primarily about us and what we do. It's primarily about him and what he has done. This is what it means to be gospel-centered because it's easy to to add Jesus to something or to tag his name on something. It's like in a, I don't know, a post on social media where we tag him, you know, but it really has nothing to do with him. It's easy to do that in Christianity where we tag on the name of Jesus or we, we add something, we say this is Christian, but if it's not gospel-centered, it doesn't reflect the scriptures. So let me read to you a quote. Uh, this is one, uh, I mentioned this in the first service, those that... Uh, who are so blessed to be able to be married by me when I perform their wedding. I, I say that jokingly. Uh, but when I perform a wedding, uh, I do have another guy who can perform weddings for you if you need one in the room. Uh, sorry, Tyler. I just had to throw that out there. Um, so I include this quote in every inside joke. Sorry. Every, every wedding I, I perform, I, I read this quote from Tim Keller because marriage is actually a picture of the gospel, the way that a husband and a wife are called to become one and the way that they're to love one another. They display this love that, that is born out of the, the truth of the gospel. So Tim Keller says it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the gospel. 
this is the gospel, that we are sinned and sinful and flawed, but over and above that, that God is more loving and gracious and kind uh, than we could ever hope for. This is the gospel. Let, let me mention to you kind of a little tool um, that I, I think I introduced this two or three years ago. It's, it's been a minute. Uh, I have a whole bunch of these left over. There are these bookmarks um, about the four, what I call the four questions. All right, so I have a bunch of these at Next Steps if you want to grab one. This is a, kind of a filter for me to help keep things in my life gospel-centered. Uh, when I read the scriptures, when I think through scenarios, when I think through life, four questions. This, here, here are the four questions. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? What do I do? So the first question is, who is God? What has he done? In light of who he is and what he has done for us in Christ, which we've just been talking about, in light of who he is and what he's done, who am I? What is my identity? And then how am I to live? What do I do? But it all flows out of who God is and what he has done. Because what we tend to do is we turn things upside down and we, we first say, okay, what am I supposed to do? What, how does this affect me? What does this have to do with me? Instead of first gospel-centered means who is God? What has he done? Everything else flows out of that. So let me give you an illustration when it comes to thinking through scripture even. So we sang this morning, God so loves, right? John 3, 16. For God so, loves, so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So if we filter that through a typical like me-centered lens, we would go, oh man, God loves me. And we would all go, we would all say amen. We rejoice in that. Praise the Lord, God loves me. But if we were to go through a gospel-centered lens, we say, who is God? Well, God is this loving, merciful, forgiving God. What has he done? He sent his son to die for me, to pay the penalty of my sin. So who does that make me? That, me, that makes me a loved, forgiven son or daughter of God. What do I do? It may not say necessarily specifically, but the inference is because he has loved me, he has sacrificed for me, he has served me, now I love and serve and give to others. I don't know if you all noticed when I, when I prayed. You probably checked out when I was praying for the offering, and that's okay. Um, I prayed, God, you, because you have so freely given to us, we have freely received, so we freely give. That's, that's a gospel prayer. We, we don't just give because it makes us feel good or we're supposed to. We give based upon who God is and what he's done because he has freely given to us. He has served us. He has met us in our need. We we reciprocate that, right? We love others. We serve others. This is what it means to be gospel-centered. At the, at the heart of everything is the truth of the gospel, and that guides everything that we do. So what is the gospel? It's the good news of who Christ is and what he has done, the person and the work of Christ. So what do we do with the gospel. And I want to go back to verse number 17 here. Uh, a couple things that Paul mentions here in this passage. What do we do with it? Verse 17, we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. He says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, don't hear what he's not saying. He's not saying that baptism is bad or that we shouldn't baptize. Paul is rather saying, okay, baptism is good. It's a picture of the gospel. But why I was sent, why I came, my primary purpose is to preach the gospel. If I don't preach the gospel, there's no baptism, all right? Preach the gospel. This is the priority here. 
So preach the gospel. If the gospel is a message, then we are messengers, right? If the gospel is a message, we are messengers. We proclaim good news. That is our responsibility. In fact, Romans 10, I want to take you here. Paul talks about this, this calling to preach the word, to share the truth of the gospel. Because, and I want you to hear as we read through Romans 10, hear through this lens that hearing is essential for salvation. Hearing the gospel is essential. If, someone, if anyone is going to be freed of their sin and forgiven of their sin, they have to first hear the gospel. So Romans 10, here's what Paul says. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing, all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. In other words, the gospel is available to all, Jew, Greek, everyone, anyone who calls on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, saved from their sin, forgiven, redeemed. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, the gospel. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So, so here's the deal about the gospel is that if someone's going to actually receive the gospel, they have to first hear it. Someone has to preach the gospel. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul's talking to Timothy, this young pastor, and he, he gives him this instruction. This is kind of a go-to passage for pastors. He says, preach the word. Out of all the stuff that you're called to do, and there's a lot of important things, he says, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience in teaching. He says, Timothy, your primary responsibility is to preach the word. Now, so I came here three years ago, and I don't know if this is a Southern thing or this is just like goes part and parcel with being a pastor. But when I came here, uh, I noticed something funny. People called me by different names, you know, um, mostly good. Um, but one of the names people call me is preacher. All right. Is that a Southern thing? I don't know. Um, preacher. And when I heard that, I'm like, what? A preacher is like an old gray haired guy with a shirt and tie on, you know, um, and but like, so I, I like when people recognize me as their preacher, the preacher, but it's weird when somebody calls me capital P preacher. Hey, preacher. I'm like, that's not my name, but that's okay. Um, it's just, it's, it's funny to me and, and I like it. It's okay. But um, here's, here's the thing about that, that title. It, it's not meant to be a title because we're all called to be preachers. We're all called to preach, to proclaim, to speak forth the good news of the gospel. And what Paul says in Romans 10 is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. Everyone who believes in him calls on his name will be saved. But how are they going to call on his name unless they believe? How are they going to believe unless they hear? How are they going to hear unless someone preach? And so... If you look at your story, if you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with God, it's because you believed, you called on his name, because you believed, because you heard, because someone preached or proclaimed the good news of the gospel to you. Maybe it happened from a 
preacher in a church, maybe it was a friend, a mom or dad, I don't know, but we're all called to be preachers. We're all called to preach the gospel. So you don't get off the hook here when it says preach the word, preach the gospel. You don't have the luxury of saying, well, let's call a preacher and have him tell you what the gospel is all about. No, if we're going to be a gospel-centered people, that means we all know, understand, love, proclaim the good news because we are all preachers of the gospel. Amen? Y'all are good ameners. Let's be good preachers of the word, right? This is what he's called us to be. Now, I, I can't believe when you look at verse number 21, what, what Paul says about God. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Like, can you all wrap your minds around that? That, that this simple act of just like talking and sharing a message of good news can, like, that would transform a person's life and eternity, like that God chose this as the method to save people. This is the method that God chose to redeem people. This is the method, method that God chose to pluck souls from the grip of hell, is the simple gospel message that all we do have to do is, is, is speak and share. It pleased God to use the folly of preaching. I mean, we would all consider this and go, wow, is, is there... They're that much to preaching, like absolutely. It's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God that can change somebody's life. It is a simple message. Jesus, death, burial, resurrection. Y'all ever heard the acronym KISS? K-I-S-S, you know what it stands for? Keep it simple, stupid, all right, okay. Um, you can be more Christianly and say, keep it simple, silly, or whatever you want to say, but keep it simple, stupid. Like we tend to make things really complicated, right? We tend to make like the Bible complicated. We tend to make church complicated. Everything in our lives, like sharing our faith, complicated. It's really pretty doggone simple. Jesus died for you. He rose in the grave for you. He has the power to free you from your sin, to forgive you of all of your sin. The simple message of the cross, the word of the cross, Christ crucified. One of my favorite quotes um, that I have posted in my office, it's, it's a reminder for me as a, as a pastor because it's, it's easy to get wrapped up in a lot of stuff in the church and life and ministry, but this kind of like gives me um, a vision for my life as a, as a pastor, uh, really as a as a preacher, this is going to apply to all of us. The quote is from Nicholas Zinzendorf, and it says this, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Y'all, I think I want to put that on my tombstone. You know what I'm saying? Like, this church, this ministry, it's not built on me or my personality, nor should it be in any church, on any person or personality or, or programs. It's built on the gospel. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Just proclaim the message and then become worm food. You know what I'm saying? Be forgotten. I don't, I don't care if people remember my name in this church 10 or 20 years from now. What I care is, is their life built upon the gospel? Because I will fade away, I will pass, the work I've done 
if it's not built on Christ, it will, it will be burned up. The gospel will endure. Preach the gospel. And here's the second thing that we do with the gospel. And we would probably say, ah, that's the hardest thing. Preach the gospel. Open my mouth about the gospel. That's, that's not always easy. I would dare say that the second thing is maybe more difficult. Trust the gospel's power. Trust the gospel's power. Preach the gospel. Trust the gospel's power. Verse 17, back to that, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Preach the gospel, not with words of... So here's what he's saying, and he says this throughout here. Trust the gospel's power. Not your eloquence, not your wisdom. Trust the power of the gospel to do its work. Verse 25, he, he talks about the, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Be foolish, be weak, and let the gospel do its thing. Let its power do the work. But here's what happens in our lives, especially if we, if we preach the gospel. You know, this happens to me on a weekly basis. I preach the gospel and sometimes I question like, ah, oh, did I say that in the right way? Did I offend anybody? You know, <laughs> did I make a fool of myself? Did I embarrass the Lord who has called me to do this? I, I struggle with that. But you know what? Every time I struggle with that, it's a call to come back to trusting the gospel's power. It's not about my wisdom. It's not about my eloquence. It's not about my humor, which is terrible anyways, right? It's not about me. I don't trust in my power. I trust in the power of the gospel because God could take something that I, that I totally messed up. God can take something that you've said and totally blown it, what appears to you have blown it, and he can use that in ways that we can never imagine. It's the power of the gospel, and what we do in the church, and this is why we talk about being gospel-centered, because it's so easy for us to feel like we have to do more to make the gospel more appealing or more attractive to people. We have, we, like, and it's easy in the church and as the church to say, okay, we need to make Jesus more cool so people will be more willing to accept him. Or we have to promote the good parts of following Jesus, like he's going to make your life incredible and we skimp on all the difficult parts. Why? Because we're not trusting the power of the gospel. We're trying to make the gospel more attractive. But y'all, if the truth of the gospel, that we are sinners, but that God loves us, that he's died for us, that he has provided everything through his work on the cross to forgive us and redeem us, to make us new, if that isn't attractive enough, God help us. God help us. It is the power of the gospel that changes people. It is the power of the gospel that changes people, that saves people. It is the power of the gospel that keeps people. It is the power of the gospel that grows people. It is the power of the gospel. This is what it means to be gospel-centered. And so preach the gospel, trust the gospel's power. I just want to read kind of beyond 1 Corinthians 1.25 verses 26 through 31, and then just the first few verses of, of chapter two, Paul kind of continues this line of thought. He says in verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Okay, the, the ones that God called, like you weren't, 
There's nothing special about most of you. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God wants the glory. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Paul goes on in chapter two to say this, when I came, I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I wasn't all that impressive when I came to you proclaiming the gospel. Verse two, for I decided, I determined in my heart to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, when I came to you preaching and proclaiming this message, man, I wasn't impressive. I was weak and I was shaken in my boots and I was fearful, but it wasn't about me. It wasn't about me. It was about the demonstration, like the spirit working in power to give you this message here is the thing. When we talk about trusting in the power of the gospel, he says, when you add anything to the gospel to try to make it more palatable or attractive, when you try to speak with eloquent, wor eloquent words of, of wisdom to attract people, what he says is you have in fact, verse number 17, chapter one, you have in fact emptied the cross of its power. Would you hear that this morning? If we as a church add anything to the gospel to try to draw people in, we actually do away with the power of the message itself. We nullify, Paul says in Galatians 2, the, 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 the grace of God. We have emptied it of its power. The power is in the gospel message. So preach the gospel Trust the gospel's power. Here's the third question that I just want to take a minute to answer. How do people respond to the gospel? How do people respond to it? So verses 22 and 23, let me just revisit those for a minute. Paul says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And we'll pick up in verse 24 in a minute, but here's what he's, here's, here's, Three responses that Paul gives us to the gospel. One, some stumble over it. Some stumble over the message of the gospel. He, he says here that Jews demand signs. All right, so Jewish people, they were always looking for miraculous signs, like God show us something miraculous so we know that you're speaking. Uh, and that's not too uncommon from us today, right? God, give me a sign. But they were looking for something miraculous. In particular, the Jewish people, when when they were thinking about the, the, the prophecies of this coming Messiah who's going to deliver them, what they were looking for, the sign that they were looking for was this mighty military leader who was gonna come in and, and wage war and free them from the oppression of the Romans. This is the sign that they were looking for. This is what they wanted, a mighty military leader. 
for salvation. And what they got was the opposite of that, right? It wasn't a mighty military leader bringing salvation. It was salvation through a crucified Christ who appeared weak, who appeared defeated, who appeared dead. This is not what they were looking for. This is not what they were expecting. And so when the message of the cross came, they stumbled over it. And this is how people, even today, stumble over the message of the cross. Like there must be something else. There must be more. There must be another way. There's, there's something I've got to do to add to this. This is not what I was expecting. And so we stumble over the simplicity of the cross, the simplicity of the message. It's not, hey, go do a bunch of good stuff. No, it's just belief. Put your faith in Christ, the one who has already done the work for you. And so when you're looking for more to do, it means stumble over the simplicity of it. So some people stumble over the message of the cross. Some people laugh it off. Some people laugh it off. It says the Greeks seek wisdom. In other words, the Greeks were intellectual people. They were looking for, you know, reason and logic and through argument they were trying to figure out how salvation was going to come to them and and so this way of salvation that's proclaimed it says was folly to them uh, folly just it means foolish or silly absurd nonsense it, it also translates translates the word that we get uh, moron all right so like this is moronic this is nonsense this makes no sense and so the way that people laugh off the gospel message today is, in essence, they say, well, this doesn't make any sense, right? This is nonsense. This is fake. This is make-believe. This is fairy tale. Hey, you go off into your little church, you know, fairy tale world, and I'm just going to live in the real world, right? It's, they laugh it off. They say, this is folly. This is foolishness. It makes no sense. So some stumble over it. Some laugh it off. But then there's a third response, and it's this. Some believe it, receive it, and get to experience God's wisdom and God's power. Some believe it, receive it, and experience God's wisdom and power. Verse 24 goes on to say, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, everyone, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In other words, some people believe the gospel truth, they receive it, and because of that, they get to experience the power of God that changes their life and the wisdom of God that turns their world upside down and their way of thinking. It, it changes everything. This is what the gospel does. So some, some stumble over it, some laugh it off, some, maybe some of you have believed it, received it, and you've been able to experience the power and the wisdom of God because of belief in the truth of the gospel. So this morning, my question for you is this, is the gospel central in your life? Is the gospel central in your life? I'm not just, I'm not asking you, do, do you come to church often? I'm not asking uh, if you're a good person. I'm asking, is the gospel at the center of the heart of your life? Because whatever is at, whatever central in your heart determines everything that you say and do and think, the way you behave, whatever is central in your heart, whatever, here's the language I use, whatever sits on the throne of your heart, which for many of us and often it's, it's me, it's self. Everything revolves around me. 
And so when I sit on the throne of my own heart, everything I think and feel and the way I behave, it centers around me. It's me-centered. Here's what I'm calling us to do today is to allow Christ to be on the throne. I'm asking for you today to make the gospel central in your life, not just to attach Jesus like to your profile, but that the gospel is at the center of, at the heart of who you are and all that you do. First Corinthians 1.31, that you wouldn't boast in anything except the cross. We would only boast in the Lord. Kiss, keep it simple. It's all about the gospel. Preach the gospel. Make it the message of your life. Preach it to yourself daily. Preach it to those who God gives you opportunity. And, and by the way, don't get discouraged at the response. You're not called to uh, control the response of people to the gospel message. You and I are called to just preach it, to proclaim it, and then trust the gospel's power to do what it does. You don't have to make it more palatable or cooler. You just have to proclaim it in a heart of love. God will do his work with that. You know, my greatest desire from day number one in this church is that this church, that our church would be a gospel-centered church. Not just a church that meets every Sunday, not just a church that does its thing, not just a church that has you know, great programs and all of this stuff. That, no, that we would be a gospel-centered church, that we would be united around the truth of the gospel, that we may disagree on a lot of stuff, but at the end of the day, the one thing that we are gonna grab hold of with both hands and we're never gonna let go of is the truth of the gospel. And that's gonna guide everything that we do and who we are. We're not gonna water down that message. The key to the church unity, I said this in the beginning, the key to church unity is gospel centrality. Y'all haven't used this term uh, very much at all in three years because I didn't know if we were ready to hear like the, 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 the brute honesty of it because we haven't always been a gospel-centered church. But by the grace of God, I believe we are becoming a gospel-centered church. I, I wanna read you one last quote to kind of end here. David Guzik says this, let every pulpit rightly say, we preach Christ crucified. And all God's people said, amen. amen. A strong church once inscribed these words on an archway leading to the churchyard. Over time, two things happened. The church lost its passion for Jesus and his gospel and ivy began to grow on the archway. The growth of the ivy covering the message showed the spiritual decline. Originally, it said strongly, we preach Christ crucified. But as the ivy grew, one could only read, we preach Christ. And the church also started preaching, Jesus, the great man, and Jesus, the moral example, instead of Christ crucified. The ivy kept growing, and one could soon only read, we preach the church also had even lost Jesus in the message, preaching religious platitudes and social graces. We preach. Finally, one could only read, we. And the church also uh, just became another social gathering place, all about we and not about God. 
Y'all, that is a very real reality. That is a slippery slope that every church faces. Are we going to continue to allow the gospel to be at the center? Are we going to make peripheral things central? Are we going to try to attract people to the message of the cross? Which is, by the way, an offensive message. That you are a sinner. That you're not all that that you're broken, that you need help outside of yourself. That is not the wisdom of this world. That is an offensive message, but it is a message of love. And it is a message of power. It is the power of God, this word of the cross. Y'all, may we be a church that is centered, united around the gospel. Amen. And God, thank you for the truth of the word of the cross, Christ crucified. Lord, the power of the gospel. God, I can't make it any more attractive than it already is. So God, thank you for the simplicity of the gospel message, the word of the cross thankful for who you are, for what you have done. God, I pray that you would continue the work in which you have started here, molding me and every single person that calls this place home into gospel-centered people, that we don't just talk about Jesus, we don't just talk about the Word of God, that when the world cuts us open, we bleed gospel person in the work of Christ. And so God, would you continue this work? Would you continue to build our church? Would you continue to build our lives upon the word of the cross? We pray in Jesus' name.